You're listening to For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm Amy Chu, Senior Director, Academic Services and Registration at New York University School of Law. I'm Jerry Cunningham, Director of Academic Services and Registrar at Baylor Law. I'm Lisa Irk, Associate University Registrar and Law School Registrar at University of the Pacific, Sacramento Campus, McGeorge School of Law. And this is the Law School Registrar. Greetings and welcome to For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. This is Sarah Reed, University Registrar at the University of California, Berkeley. And I'm Doug McKenna, University Registrar at George Mason University. We are on our second attempt at recording this interview. We ran into some technical issues the first time around, so fingers crossed that everything goes smoothly today. If you at home are listening to this, we have succeeded. Our topic today is about the life of a law school registrar and the differences in work duties and scope between a university registrar and a law registrar. And it's a topic that is near and dear to your heart, Sarah. How long were you a law school registrar before you switched over to being the university registrar? I was um, an assistant for two years and then a registrar for eight and then another three. So 12 years total. Uh, And I feel like there are many aspects of that experience, both in a law school and with campus partners that has really increased my awareness. And it really supports my continued work now, even as a university registrar. Right on. Nice. Hopefully today we'll unpack and parse out some of those skills and unique talents that it takes to successfully manage the role of being a law registrar. Let's provide some history and then we'll jump right in with some questions. Law schools are accredited by the American Bar Association, or ABA, which conducts accreditation reviews similar to any of the regional accrediting bodies. The ABA was founded in 1878. They published the first standards for legal education in 1921, which led to the accreditation process beginning in 1952, and they continue to publish their standards and related guidelines on their website. We'll link it in the show notes if you want to check it out after. It's important to note that not all law schools are accredited and that there are variations within work allocation, how aspects of work is completed, and reporting structures across both non-accredited and accredited law schools. So that's the way in which law registrars are just like university registrars, right? There's no right way to be a registrar. That is absolutely correct. There's not one right way to be a registrar. There are some wrong ways, but there's (laughs) not one right way. Unfortunately, the ABA also voted in 1912 to restrict membership to only white men, saying, quote, the settled practice of the association has been to elect only white men as members, end quote. In 1918, they expanded that ever so slightly as two white women became members. But it wasn't until 1943 that the association considered a resolution that, quote, Membership in the ABA is not dependent upon race, creed, or color, end quote. That resolution passed, but it wasn't until 1950 that the ABA accepted its first black member. And that structural legacy affects every aspect of society, not just law school. And it still has an active effect on the experience of law students, faculty, and staff, especially those of color, even in law institutions that are making great strides in DEIBJ and equity efforts. There are currently 199 institutions in the United States approved by the ABA to confer the first degree in law, the Juris Doctor, JD. That's the degree that most people think of when someone says they're going to law school. It's typically a three-year full-time program, but some schools offer a part-time program, which is typically a four-year program. In addition to the JD degree, many law schools also offer two additional degree programs. The Masters of Law, or LLM degree, is an advanced degree program. Law students and professionals frequently pursue the LLM after obtaining a JD to gain experience in a specialized field of law, for example, in the area of tax law or international law, among others. This is typically a one-year full-time program. And then there's the Masters of Law, or MSL degree. 
which is a master's degree for those who want to learn the law but don't want to become lawyers. No prior law experience or degree is required, and typically only a bachelor's degree is needed to apply. This can be a one-year full-time program or a longer part-time program. Many students who pursue the MSL have full-time professional careers and earn this degree to strengthen their knowledge of law as it applies to their profession. The general difference between an MSL and an LLM is that the MSL, again, is for non-lawyers, while the LLM is for attorneys. Each program serves different student types with different goals and credentials. There's also the Doctor of the Science of Law, the JSD, and it is the law school's most advanced law degree, and it's considered a doctorate equivalent to a PhD. It's designed for those interested in becoming scholars and teachers of law, including interdisciplinary approaches to law. And then there are other credentials. There are certificate credentials, among others, and they're offered, but we won't go into that for this session. Doug, guess what career position may be a great candidate for an MSL? Tell me everything. <laughs> a university registrar. What? Makes total sense, right? For plus, plus, plus. Right on. So first, we'll organize our conversation by starting with a frame of reference about what the law school work is and highlighting the various aspects of being a law registrar. In the second half of the conversation, we'll ask the panelists common questions and curiosities of university registrars. Let's learn from our guests, Amy, Jerry, and Lisa. Welcome. Please introduce yourselves and share a little bit about your institution, including the number of students, breakdown of degrees offered, your student information system, and if your law school is a standalone law school or part of a wider campus or system. We'll go alphabetically and we'll start with you, Amy. Hi, yes, thank you for having me. So NYU has about 2,000 students at the law school and 1,400 of those are JD students and about 600 of those are LLM students, the Master of Law students, and about 160 of those 600 are part-time LM students, and most of those are practicing attorneys um, that are also getting their LM degree. And then we also have a handful of students in our JSD program, our MSL, and our MS programs. Uh, we are on the PeopleSoft system, and we are part of the university, and we have a central university registrar. Awesome. Thank you. And 2,000 students is actually fairly large for law school. Yes, it is. Awesome. Thank you, Amy. Jerry, would you like to share? Thanks, Sarah. Uh, yeah, so Baylor Law School is part of Baylor University in Waco, Texas. We have about 440, about 450 probably total students. About 430 of those are JD students. It's a full-time program, in-person program. Our LLM program is small. It has about I guess, 20 or 25 students at any given time, and it's an online program, and they're just trying to grow that program. We use Banner, and we happen to be the oldest law school in Texas. No, fun fact. Right Thanks, on. Mary. <laughs> Lisa. I'm Lisa Erk, and I am both the sides of the house here for the university and the law school. So University of the Pacific, our school university uh, enrollment is about 6,200 plus students. We have three campuses in Northern California in Stockton, San Francisco, and Sacramento. Our law school is located here where I'm at on the Sacramento campus. And on this campus, we actually share our space with to other schools. So there's McGeorge School of Law, our Benner College of Education, and our School of Health Sciences. So each of those schools exists on just this campus. Uh, the law school is affiliated with the University of the Pacific. Our student faculty ratios, like 14 to 1, and class sizes are about 23, except for in some first year courses. Our law school class size is about 150 full-time day and about 25 part-time evening, and that's the annual fall entry. Our overall school population for the law school sits at just over 500. We have law programs in addition to the JD program, which are LLM, MSL, an MSL online, an MPP, Master's Public Policy, and a Master's of Public Administration, all in our law school. Nice. Uh, so combined for the law school, over 600 students, and our SIS is Banner. Awesome. Thanks so much. 
What are the big bucket items that are included in the law registrar's department portfolio of responsibilities? And what, if any, unique requirements or challenges are imposed by the ABA? You know, one of the things you learn when you start talking to different law school registrars, and I'm sure you know this, Sarah, from personal experience, is all of our offices do different things. And <laughs> responsibility at Baylor might be the main campus registrar's office responsibility somewhere else and vice versa. But we have a lot of specialized needs within law schools. I guess we could say law lawyers are special, right? (laughs) For me, I mean, I build the schedule, plan the schedule for the academic year. I'm responsible for overseeing registration. You know, overseeing is a grand term, but I'm really in the nuts and bolts of a lot of it most, most of the time. We have to do class rank for our students so that they're competitive for jobs. So that's part of what we do. There's lots of reporting required, you know, for for various surveys, for rankings, for the American Bar Association. I'm heavily involved in our Title IV compliance here, making sure that our students are actually here and attending classes since we do work federal financial aid. I have four commencement a year, four exam periods a year. I don't administer all of the exams, but I do, my office is responsible for administering accommodated exams. And the list goes on. I'm sure Amy and Lisa have some of these similar things and then more. I'm still trying to get over four commencements a year. Let's hear from uh, you, Lisa. What would you say? Yes, many of the things that you mentioned, Jerry, were exactly (laughs) what we do, the registration, the assigning anonymous IDs, the, um, you know, overseeing anonymous grading, ranking, um, bar certification, the ABA compliance. Uh, We do first year and the first year LSAC reporting. Uh, ABA annual reporting, bar passage reports for the law schools, all those results coming in, we add those into our SIS and then turn those into quartile reports and performance so that they can understand what's happening. U.S. News, specialized student forms, um, JAG applications for our students, yeah. And Amy, what would you say? Echoing most of what Jerry and Lisa already said and also our office is responsible for any FERPA requests and uh, bar certification for students applying to sit for the bar exam, and also some academic advising as well in terms of course selection. That's awesome. Thank you. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to follow up on the reporting. Lisa, you started to sort of inventory the time and or the sequencing of it. So the ABA is an annual report, and then what's the cadence of the other things. So if you have four commencements every year, do you have to do those reports, the quartiles and the rankings and the all of those four times a year as well? Or is that just like a every spring kind of a thing? Yeah, I feel like I hit the lottery because unlike Jerry, I do not have four commencements. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, Jerry, uh, my heart goes out to you. Um, yeah, we have, we allow our students to graduate in all three of the semesters, the fall, spring, and summer, but there is only one commencement per year, thankfully. ABA reporting is annual. That is October, uh, and that is the design by the ABA for all of us, so that's October reporting. The bar is held twice a year, so we do bar reporting results and then reporting out in those quartile reports after each set of bar results come back. The certifications obviously precede that. Uh, U.S. News is once a year in December, and the LSAC reporting is once a year, and that is usually around October, November, and it's the previous year's data. So they're looking at first-year performance of law students in their first year. Right on. It's similarly, do you report enrollment reports to the National Student Clearinghouse? So clearinghouses actually run as a university okay. enrollment piece, which is probably similar to what you have, which is monthly for enrollment, monthly for degrees awarded, and also start and ends of term, add drop dates, and any other census dates that we need to create more reports. 
<laughs> and what about iPads reporting? Oh, yes, that's right. Thank you, Sarah. iPads. Yeah, iPads. I start in August, even though my IR office wants it. In September, they want us hot and heavy working on it and by 1st of October. But I start in August just because of all the timing of the various schools. And we have, although I didn't mention this earlier, we have four different terms here at University of the Pacific. We have semester, semester law, trimester, and quarter system here. So maybe that's my curse like Jerry's commencement. So with all of these terms starting and ending at different times, there is no downtime. It's always something. And just to add on to uh, all of the reports that Lisa mentioned, our office also, if there are ad hoc reports at different departments as well, then we'll usually provide that too. Reporting is so significant. I'm so curious, if you're going to do a percentage of your time, how much would you say was going to reporting? I would say 40%. Easily. No, it's a guess. We get we get so many requests because we do have our hand on hand on the data, and we know we have tools to to pull data. So it seems like the faculty is constantly asking for things. But those other things, like the ABAQ, take it takes me a while to work through. And I have not as many students as y'all, so I don't. I can imagine what it's like when you have two thousand students to crunch all those numbers. And let's talk about staffing sizes then, right? Because you have this broad scope of work. What would you say is the structure of your team? Who does what work per role type? Yeah, so at NYU, we have two separate offices, one that we call the Office of Records and Registration and one that we call the Office of Academic Services. So the Office of Records and Registration is your kind of traditional law school registrar office. So we'll handle functions such as the reporting we've been talking about or bar certification or FERPA requests, background investigations. And then our Office of Academic Services will handle things such as the advising, planning the curriculum, exam accommodations and things of that nature. So we have across both offices, we have eight administrators and four staff members, and then occasionally we'll have a student worker as well. So on Sacramento campus, our registrar's office staff combined for all university programs, not just law, there's four of us. So yeah, there's four of us here, and I would say work type per person. Well, with only four people, everybody wears lots of hats in order to cover all those services. So everything from room scheduling, veteran certification, university catalogs, SIS management, registration, enrollment, degree evaluation, awarding records, uh, compliance, data, as we talked about earlier. And then also a huge component of my job is program development support and launching new programs because our School of Health Science is a newer school. Uh, That is a large portion of my job, even though it's not related to law, but that's woven into that same workday. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness. Well, and at Baylor, well, we are small, you know, relatively small law school as far as our student body goes. And so in my office, there are two of us, and I do a lot of the reporting. We both kind of work on registration, but my colleague Susie is primarily responsible for setting up registration, for organizing our schedule for accommodating exams. Um, there's a whole plethora of things. She, we both sort of try to have separate duties, but we both have a lot of crossover and have the ability to take a, you know, jump in and help each other or do something on behalf of the other if that person is able to do it, but just two of us. But of course, we do, we do get a good amount of support from our main campus registrar's office. They handle the clearinghouse reporting, thank goodness. And <laughs> If I need help with something, they're really a good resource and very helpful. That's a great segue, Jerry. Thank you for making that because I was going to ask sort of how the law registrars fit into sort of the larger or broader law school community environment. Like what are the resources that are available to you? How do individuals in the law registrar community interact with each other other than getting together to record podcasts? Where are the kinds of interchanges and exchanges that happen? Well, at Baylor, I mean, it's just awareness. We have to raise awareness that we're over here at the law school, you know, sometimes because they have a huge job to do for their population. And sometimes I think it can be easy to forget that we're over here and we're very unique on campus. They facilitate things for a lot of other schools on campus, but we're the only ones that sort of are doing a lot of the, you know, we're doing our own registration where they're really facilitating registration for those other departments. So it can get confusing. 
and we rely on them for technology help. You know, we're, we're just now uh, launching a new system for building our class schedule. And it's something that the university decided to purchase and they're sort of the main campus registrar is leading the way. And now they've brought us in so that we can use it too and learn about it. But we rely on them to sort of come up with those really great ideas and to help us with facilitate processes. But it, a lot of it's just awareness and being good community members and kind to each other. <laughs> so that's internal to Baylor, right? Are there access points to larger law registrar communities that you tap into when you have questions about some change in ABA standard or some tweak to some kind of a report? How does that community sort of function? I think the law registrar community is very much like the larger registrar community. I think all registrars have this sense of, you know, we want to connect, we want to have a desire to help each other, grow, learn, share tips. And in that, you know, the law registrars are just the smaller set, subset of that larger group. And so when we come together at ACRO, we're excited to be there with all our ACRO friends, but we're also excited to be there with our NILSO friends uh, because there's special sessions that are on topics that law school registrars have their burning questions, the help they need, what's new, regulatory changes, how do we stay compliant? So NILSO's been just fabulous for that. And that's what really brought me in. Yes, go ahead, Doug. <laughs> What's NELSO? <laughs> National Network of Law School Officers. The National Network of Law School Officers, NELSO. Yeah. And there is a breakfast at every annual meeting. There's a NELSO breakfast for as a designed get together there. That yeah. is our business meeting, our breakfast, <laughs> awards, incoming, outgoing, voting, everything, budget, approval. Right. And Jerry, and that, were you president of Nelso at one point? I was the executive director. Executive I've been director. active in that organization for a long time, and I love it. It's just a really wonderful place to network and have a support system and have friends to ask if you have questions because someone else has figured out the answer to your problem if you start asking around. But this organization became a thing in about 1983. A group of law school registrars were at Acro in New Orleans and they got together and that's how Nelso came to be. Yeah, Nelso is great. It's where I met so many of my fellow law school registrars and have definitely gotten tips. And, you know, before the session, Jerry and I were talking a little bit about the bar passage questionnaire that we're working on. And at one of the recent meetings, I had chatted with another law registrar about how she stores the data within PeopleSoft. And right away, you know, I connected with her. She sent me screenshots of where she keeps it so that I could then connect with our central university registrar to get that program into our system. And yeah, so Nilsa is great. And then I'm sure also a lot of registrars have also some regional registrar groups and, you know, other sort of networks like that as well. Nice. I'll, I'll say too that I had been a member of ACRO and worked at two other universities before ever working in a law school. Was going to ACRO, knew nothing about NILSO. I was like, I don't know what that's about. <laughs> it's not for me. And then as soon as I became a law registrar, I was like, wait, ranking? Wait, ABA? How do you do all of these things? And I was immediately pointed to folks in NILSO and also local law registrars. And I would never have survived. And Sarah was one of them. Oh. It is a really beautiful community. I, I appreciate that about the Acro community in particular is how supportive everyone is and how giving and generous with their time and knowledge. So it's nice that there is that same kind of connection and community for law registrar specifically. Yeah. In case it's not super clear to the listeners, Nelso has basically a tandem conference at, Acro, at the annual Acro conference where there's several sessions that are devoted just to law school topics. Someone like Jerry in that role would have created and developed and books present on. So it'd be amazing. I'm going to ask you something that maybe you all are not often asked. What would you say are some of the joys and or amazing things about being a law registrar? What do you love about it? Did you say joys? <laughs> <laughs> I did use that word. It may be too positive. What would, would you say you like about me? What's challenging in a way that you like it? about being I would say for me, it's a really good combination of my various interests and background history. So, you know, I started off 
as a law student and then I practice. And then even before I went to law school, I kind of knew I wanted to go into university administration. So when I wound up working in law school administration, it was perfect because it spoke to my interests, my skill sets, and I can also use my legal background to kind of inform a lot of the work that I do. I can also flip the question the opposite way, Jerry, to your point, working in a law school Red Start can be very challenging. All of you have been in your roles for quite some time. Why do you stay? And it does have challenges, but I like a good challenge. And I am challenged often. <laughs> but I really love people. And I mean, we all have our days more like, I don't want to talk to someone but or talk to anyone. But I mean, our students are here because they're choosing to be. And that's kind of cool. They're having fun. You know, you see a few here and there that are just like not enjoying it. But most of our law students are enjoying the challenge of being in law school. So it's kind of fun to work with them. And it, the faculty love doing what they do. And so it's just a great, I enjoy that. I, you know, I do, there are days when I'm like, why am I doing this? But it's fun. It really is in kind of a strange way. <laughs> right, Lisa? Yeah. I mean, 30, almost 35 years ago, I started off in the medical field, the medical legal field. And that med legal was kind of my realm. And eventually I pivoted into higher ed. And now I work on a campus where it's education, medical, and legal. So I apparently found all the things I've loved and I just put them into a single campus. So, um, like yes. Yahtzee. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I feel like I hit the jackpot in that. And it's all the things that I know, the terminology, the kind of what is it, the underpinning of it. I, I mean, I knew many lawyers. I used to have them as clients when I worked in med legal. And then now we send students to go do externships at their office. So I think that's a beautiful thing to kind of have that evolution, so to speak, of a career. And I, I think I just love the challenge. I kind of see law registrar as a registrar 2.0. It's like all the things you do as a registrar, and then can you push yes. yourself just a little further and do some more things or a lot further and do a lot more things. And I think I like that challenge. We're going to talk about some of those more things in a second, but I want to pause here for just a moment. Is anyone a fan of The Office? Because there's a scene in the office where Michael turns to Toby and is like, why are you the way you are? And I feel that way sometimes about the law school academic calendar. Why is it different than the university calendar? It always seems like it starts earlier. It's There's like just enough difference to make it messy. Why is that? What is it about law school's that the calendars are driven the way that they are? Are there anchor points that you have to meet and hit? Or is there something else? Why is it that way? Well, at Baylor, we're on a quarter system. So we're, we were different from the start from the university. And we do have to meet a certain number of hours per the American Bar Association. Each class has to meet a standard. And our faculty have a little higher standard than what the ABA requires. And most of us may have that same situation. So that sort of drives the, our calendar. And it is a little intense. My friend Judith, we all know Judith Calvert, who was the registrar at Yale Law School for many years. But Judith, when she retired, she said, I don't have to live by the academic calendar any. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yeah, and at NYU, we also are, in addition to having the ABA regulations and some of the faculty needs, we're also tied in a little bit to the university in that for the spring semester, we count back from when university sets commencement. So, because then we know, okay, well, we need this many exam days, this many weeks before the exams. So that's how we then arrive backwards to the start of our semester. Going back to the, why are you the way you are? <laughs> why are our exams different for law registrars at law school? What does your exam look like? Do you manage it? Does someone else manage it? Who runs them? Who practices them? Do you do accommodations? Tell us everything you want to know about exams. We do all of the above, everything you just said. <laughs> the exam accommodations, postponement, scheduling the exams, finding the proctors, getting the exams in front of the students or uploaded into the system for remote exams. We do all of it. What does an exam accommodation look like? Uh, there could be different accommodations. So there could be extended time. There could be um, an exam in a small space, you know, away from the larger classroom. There could be technology, for example, you know, voice assistance. There's uh, many different 
Um, okay, so it's a similar set of accommodations. I wasn't sure if that was a term of art within law exams that there's an accommodation, but it's just a regular, it means the same thing for other exams, but you all are managing that. Whereas for the university, there's a office. Yeah, we have a central office that makes the determinations, but then it's our office that actually implements them. Okay. And we're the same way at Baylor. And I think I think when when it was decided that we would have our students take the exams at the law school or accommodated students, a little of it's just comfort and convenience for those students so they don't have to go on campus sure. during exams because we're a little removed from campus slightly. But also, exam security is a big thing. Our faculty don't want their exams sent somewhere else on campus. Sure. That's why we do it at the law school part of it. Sure. And Jerry, are those um, like printed exams or those through a, a software? What what ser- service do you use for exam? At Baylor, we're still printing paper exams, but they're taking, they're answering the exam in software that's uploaded and the faculty member can grade. I think many of them still like a printed exam to grade off of, but they have the ability not different what you know using their laptop or their computer Gary, i think you mentioned you had some online programs right do those students use have remote exams or they do have remote exams they come to campus for one week during the term but then they go after they're done with their on campus that they which is near the end of the term then they go home and they take their finals online yeah we have that as well for our online tax program I think the biggest challenge for exams is that we double the space and double the time. So for the law exams, we seat students every other seat. So what once sat in a single classroom takes two classrooms to offer an exam. Uh, Students need to take the same exam. So if you have civil procedure and you have multiple sections, they all take that exam at the same time. So there's no sharing of information. So those all have to be synchronized, yet in double classroom usage. And then our window for the exams is two weeks. So finals go on for two weeks, which is very grueling for these students. My heart goes out to them. Especially if they're taking a full course load of, you know, four or five classes that they're, they're writing exams for each class. Let's talk for a second. Several of you have mentioned sort of exam security. And one of the things that you talked about early on was assigning anonymous IDs. And so I have questions about blind grading or anonymous grading. What is it? How does it work? And then why do law schools use it? And what is your experience administering it? Blind or anonymous grading allows each student to submit their work using a unique ID number, not their student ID, but a unique number. And this allows the professors to receive those exams with just this usually four or six digit number, grade those exams without knowing who wrote that essay question. And the purpose really is that it reduces bias in the grading. And this increases the student's confidence for speaking up when they're in class under that Socratic method. And so they can challenge those tough tough topics with their professors and yet have a learning environment, not fearing that, wow, if I say something that really kind of sets my professor off or some, you know, they don't feel they have that same bias. They feel safe, I think, in taking those exams. Also, law school students are ranked against one another. And so anonymous grading removes that bias in the grading, which in turn kind of strengthens the rank result for each student against their peers. That's very Lisa. (laughs) There are little pieces of that that I hadn't really thought about. That's wonderful. And are the numbers generated in the student information system? Like, is there a module and banner that is an, an anonymous ID generator or do you use an Excel spreadsheet? Like what's the process for assigning and how often are the numbers assigned? Is it the same number for the each student by semester, by academic year? Because that seems that's a lot of work, I assume. Maybe it's super easy. I don't I know nothing. At Baylor, um, our main campus IT team helped us come up with a way. They've set something up in banner that assigns the numbers. We do it every term and use the same number on all of the exams for that term. 
Yeah, and we use similar PeopleSoft will generate the number and they'll use the same number for each exam that semester. We do have some classes that offer midterm exams and so for those we'll manually create the midterm exams. How are the students notified what their number is? At NYU, they can log into our portal and see it. Okay, so it's stored and associated with them and you can, that's how they're communicating. You don't have to send out like a carrier pigeon that then like <laughs> finds the particular student and... I have the carrier pigeons. No, I'm just kidding. Right. <laughs> it's a male merge, but yes. <laughs> like, owl. In my mind, I've got this like inspector gadget guy who like shows up in a garbage can and is like, your number is four, three, seven, two. This message will self-destruct and then like disappears. And the student has to memorize the number, but it it's there in the system. Student can log in and see like, Oh, that's my number. Okay. Yeah, and it Good. works great unless they show up for an exam on the morning of and the Wi-Fi isn't working. <laughs> Warn them. Don't wait to the last minute to get your exam number. You know, one yeah. thing we haven't mentioned that I think probably a lot of law registrar offices deal with is so for our students, they get that exam ID number from a shadow system. And I'm sure a lot of law schools are also using shadow system outside of the uh, university SIS system. Yeah, our student portal is one that Baylor has. And they, they've actually, you know, they, for example, had to do a unique process so that our faculty can do blind grading in that portal. When they submit their grades, they need to be able to not see names. And that so that created challenges, but they are very accommodating and work with us to come up with solutions. That's great. Now, with regards to grading, do faculty enter their own grades in the portal or is that something that's also managed by the registrar's office? So at NYU, the faculty can either enter it themselves or they can designate a pro proxy for their assistant to enter it. And then the law registrar office will uh, review and post it. And also for some of our courses, there are some mandatory or suggested curves. And so we ch the system can now calculate for that. That was something we worked with the university registrar to implement, but we also are checking for some of those things as well. And then we have that um, kind of last posting ability. That's the same here at McGeorge. Yeah, that's one thing that law schools do. Well, I don't do this part, but generally that most law schools will have a mandatory curve in a lot of their classes, if not all. And so oftentimes that lands on the registra law registrar's area of responsibility to make sure that they're meeting the curve. And if not, they have to send them back so that the faculty member can adjust, make adjustments. Can we you imagine? That's amazing. <laughs> And we have a tool that actually um, blinds the students, but creates that graph. So when the grades go in, they can see that curve. It also gives them their, you know, high, low and median on there. Yeah. I think one of the things that always strikes me is when the faculty kind of complain about these policies, but it, they're the ones that created the policy. <laughs> that is a, another similarity that we have between various types of registrars it's yeah faculty are like why are you enforcing this <laughs> you made it you did this <laughs> let's talk a little bit about larger campus relations and reliance on other offices interactions with other offices there are a bunch of complexities as you have all pointed out in navigating sort of at least i think you said it 2.0 level of it's all the registrar stuff plus all of these other nuanced things. What are your relationships like with campus IT, with the campus registrar, with other entity, with university life or campus life? How does that work for you? What's your experience been? I'll jump in. Um, it's good. Communication is important and I value the relationships that I have with our main campus registrar's office. They've had a lot of change in the last couple of years new staff and things. And so that's one of the challenges is getting to know those people. So they are aware you're here. They remember you when they're implementing systems or, or things that are happening over there that do affect me. So I'm always appreciative when they remember us. Our main campus IT is amazing. I mean, we have uh, meetings once a month with just different players from on campus, um, not just at law school and IT, but other schools. And so there are lots of conversations that happen during those meetings where you learn what other things other departments are doing. And, and our IT staff are really good about working with us when we have ideas or when there are things happening in other areas that they've you know, made arrangements for and they'll work with us. They know how special we are at the law school. <laughs> so at NYU, we have, in addition to the law registrar office, 
and other departments you mentioned also have their own law school um, entities. So our, we have law IT, law human resources, law student financial services. And so all of us then will then interface with the university versus our IT registrar. And, you know, the relationships within the law school and with the university, they're all great. We're all, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to solve the different problems for students or, yeah. When I arrived here nine years ago, it was very silent because the campus here was just the law school. There were no other schools on this campus at that time. So it was a separate IT, a separate HR, as Amy's describing. But knowing that they were going to be building out this kind of graduate and professional campus and adding these other schools, that's how my role became one that had to really merge the two worlds because the systems were set up in Banner at different times, like years apart. Coding was not consistently used. The needs were different in some areas, as we discussed earlier. So I had to really become the bridge between the law registrar role and the associate university registrar role to kind of connect those pieces together. And I feel really fortunate because I think what I saw was this separation and siloedness when I arrived. And now, you know, we have three city registrar meetings. Everybody's on the same page, even though we do different things. There's this high level of communication and collegiality. And I get to interact with people across the entire university as well as everyone on the campus because we have separate IT on each campus. Well, connected like mine, but, you know, IT on each campus, HR on each campus. And so it's nice to get to be a part of that really big, broad picture, but then also kind of the microcosm of the separate campus and then the subset of the law. It sounds like a really nice mix that, I mean, to be honest, these other than you, I, I wasn't aware that there's any shared position, although I, something that I've heard in conversation quite a bit in my time as law registrar. That's actually a good segue for my next question. I'm delighted to hear that all three of you have great relationships with your on-campus partners. Uh, I don't think every law school is always that, you know, fortunate. It's sometimes rocky, right? Because it's like two independent entities in some way. What kind of tips would you have or recommendations from your perspective? What do, what could campus partners do to help law registrars? What would you want and need from them? Well, certainly something that was mentioned from the very beginning, the different academic calendars. And so that drives a lot of the pressure points because, you know, that maybe there's a system upgrade at a time when we are having a registration deadline. And so just the communication about how our different timelines interact is uh, definitely a big, a big help. Well, we've got a kind of a Title IV working group, of, and it's just campus partners everywhere and it sort of spurred us. We, we needed a way to really keep up with and for different areas to know what is happening in the different departments. So this calendar has been created. It's a very interactive calendar with the dates for every term. And I, I actually think law schools were sort of the first, I'm probably not right, but the first outliers on the academic calendar. And then universities suddenly said, wait a minute, we could do this for m many departments. And unfortunately for the registrar's offices, bless you main, main campus registrars, y'all are facilitating, and so are the cashiers and the financial aid folks, facilitating all these different programs with all these different calendars. I can't imagine. But anyway, this Title IV group has kind of given us all the opportunity to get to know people that we didn't know people who can who have influence over what we do, people that touch on things that we do or that we affect when we do things in our area. So I just think communication and and just awareness and asking questions is really important and being nice to each other. <laughs> it's critical. Yeah, I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, it was very siloed and it had that sense of mystery on both the law school and the main, you know, um, registrar's office when I arrived. And I think what really needed was just somebody with an open mind, somebody willing to be that bridge, being curious, asking questions. Um, every time I wanted to do something, make a change, fix something, update something, thinking about how that might affect others in other parts of the university and specifically in the main registrar office and just recognizing that what I was doing was impacting them and then helping be very open about what was happening in my area and where I needed help to not only improve things but to align with them. And so it really became this process of aligning processes, procedures, personalities, and people 
And I would say, in addition to the curious, the communication, the open mind is a willingness to travel because our campuses are not exactly right next to each other. And I did travel <laughs> to the other two campuses, each of them one day a week. So I was only on mine three days and I spent one day a week going to Stockton and one day a week traveling to San Francisco every single week for a few years to wow. build that bridge and make it work. But once you have it, it's phenomenal. That's awesome. I'm actually curious what Sarah and Doug would say from their side. <laughs> what can we do as law school registrars? I think the answer is the same, just in reverse, where communication, understanding what is happening within the law school and, and the timelines. And, you know, ideally, something like this episode will spur conversation between law registrars and their campus registrars and to elevate some of the awareness of the different issues that you all are dealing with that I don't have to deal with anonymous grading and I don't administer exams. When we schedule classes, the faculty do the exams. And so that's just a level of, and even getting an, a registrar's office staff to understand what academic scheduling looks like is tough. And then to try and explain that, oh, but it's different for this group on a campus, those are challenges. And so hopefully this communication and shedding a little light on some of the practices that go on within a law school and the underlying reasons why that happens. And Lisa, I think you said it really well about why anonymous grading is important and for university registrars or campus registrars offices to understand the complexities of that. They don't need to understand the complexities. They understand that it is a complex process that y'all are doing and offer space and grace and open communication and offers of support wherever appropriate and available. So hopefully this episode starts to create those bridges where if they didn't exist, if they weren't strong, if they were on fire, maybe we just put out the fires or start to build the bridge between the different groups on campus. Sarah, do you have, would you agree? Yeah, having served on both sides of the coin uh, and just being new, though, I would completely agree. I think the key is communication. And I think from both parties being willing to speak up and say, hey, here I am. This is who I am. Building relationships so that it's not just a one-to-one, -one, like also knowing different team members can greatly help to say, oh, I should contact this person if I have a question. Because I think the more the more we know who to contact and resources to understand um, helps. I would also say like attending or, or inviting, depending on, you know, who who's leading that law registrars and other registrars into meetings, shared meetings with IT, shared meetings with um, advising, things like that, um, and vice versa, right? The campus registrar or associate attending law school meetings, you know, and meetings are a sensitive issue, I think, for all of us. But, you know, just even if it's a once a month type of deal, I think really strengthening those relationships and putting effort into that really does go a long way. We right. have started inviting people from the law school at Mason to the OUR all staff meetings. And it's been a revelation for a lot of people. It's like, oh my gosh, not only do we have a law school, but they're doing a lot of things that we can help with. So, and from the law school side, they're like, yeah, <laughs> we've been here. <laughs> so it's been good. It's been good. Yeah, at NYU, yeah. we also have someone in our office attend monthly meetings with the various registrar representatives of the different units in the university. So that's very helpful. Part of being empathetic with someone or being able to provide or give grace is it's helpful to understand where they're coming from. So that's just so fundamental to know you don't know the entire picture. You don't see it. Why are they doing this? The <laughs> reason... <laughs> And I'm not talking, I'm saying if I sit here and say, why is the main campus registrar doing this? Well, there's a reason and I should be more patient sometimes, but also I could talk to them about it. Exactly. Yeah. And I would also say similar to trying to figure out, you know, who does what at law schools, you know, in reverse, also figuring out who does what at the university registrar, because maybe you might contact the university registrar directly about certain issues, but maybe there's somebody in the graduation services for another issue or in you know, like an IT section of the university registrar for another issue. So knowing the context 
you know, it definitely helps. I think it's important to remember we're all registrars and, <laughs> and we're all on the same team. It's about seeing us all as we're all in the same, the same space. We're all registrars here together. We're all trying to accomplish the same goals, which is to serve our students. We all share the same SIS, so we need to work together. And at the end of the day, we're just here for each other if we want to be. And so it's okay. We can we can like what's the same and we can appreciate what's different. We're on the same team. Yeah, we can be our greatest supporters. Finally, the final question from us is what what tips would you have for others considering working in a law registrar's office, transitioning in from other non-law registrar offices, or seeking to move up within a law registrar? Join Nelso. <laughs> just be open-minded and be ready for an adventure <laughs> i think someone coming from main campus registrar that's just a really great fit you know and i mean just because you if you are associated with each other you have a really good you know foundation when you come into the law school environment you understand a lot of the processes that happen and you would i think have an edge but yeah, I would agree with that. You know, being able to, you know, show how your the skills are transferable in the law school registrar environment, and also being being able to articulate why, you know, you want to make the move over to a law school. Sometimes there are very specific reasons why people want to work at a law school, and other times it isn't the law school specifically. It is, you know, the the registrar environment of it that they like. So yeah, just being able to articulate why you want to do those moves. Any tips for those within already the law registrar field, uh, law registrar environment, and further advancement moving up? What would you what would you recommend for them? Skill set, knowledge, anything? So always being willing to learn and and work on the different aspects of the office. As you know, I started here eight is it eighteen years ago? I think. <laughs> So, you know, when I started, I had no registrar experience, no law school administration experience, and I've learned a lot over the last 18 years. Yeah, my experience at Baylor has always been, well, if you want to take on more work, you can do it. <laughs> so, I mean, this it's a place where you can grow, and there's opportunity. It might take a while sometimes, but and it is fulfilling, but there's always plenty to do. And I think law schools can tend to be kind of creative with their HR decisions sometimes. It may be that you're in a certain role and then there's a need over here. And it's like, well, this person might be really great over here. And then it's an exciting advancement or change for that person. So just putting yourself out there and getting to know your leadership and being ambitious and working hard. And, you know, of course, ACRO is wonderful. Any opportunities to learn and grow. I think you're encouraged. I tend to be encouraged to do that. So I think most law schools are probably that way with their staff. The challenge is having the time to do it. Right. Before we close, is there anything we didn't cover? Is there anything you sort of expected us to ask as part of a conversation about being a law school registrar that we didn't ask? Or any other thoughts that you'd like to share? I always enjoy when I visit and talk with other law school and any registrar. It's just fun. We all have something in common. We're all here because we have that weird registrar gene that makes us all special, right? We love <laughs> We get excited about schedules and registration. <laughs> well, Amy, Jerry, we said thank you so much for being with us twice and for sharing your insight. This is really a great starter conversation that will hopefully help deepen understanding between law registrars and university registrar folks and create opportunities for open dialogue and for mutual benefit. So thank you again. It's great having you. A huge thanks again to our guests, Amy, Jerry, and Lisa for sharing their time and experiences with us. We will post a bunch of links on the show notes page. So be sure to head that way for more information. Thanks very much for listening. Did you know that Acro has more podcast content available the Herd podcast, Higher Education and Real Diversity, is definitely worth listening to. And a brand new podcast focused on transfer issues called The Transfer Tea is launching soon. Watch the podcast's page on the Acro website and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We have more great episodes in the works as well. If you have suggestions or feedback you'd like to share, email podcasts at acro.org. 
intro music tells me it's time to go. Drink more water, stretch your legs, fight the patriarchy. I'm Doug McKenna. This is For the Record.